Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 176, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. New studies are starting to reveal just how much of a slide students took during last spring's lockdown, and Oklahoma is experimenting with in-school quarantining. We'll explain why. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're talking about the pros and cons of open educational resources. And have schools that use OER had an advantage throughout virtual learning this year? Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is December 8th, 2020, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? First, tell us where you are. (laughs) I am in my office right now as we are recording, um, and I am doing pretty well today. Um, It's been a a very interesting last three or four days. Right. And we're going to get into that. And before we do that, I I do owe it to anybody who's been keeping up with us week after week. We've been talking about how your your son's high school 6A football team here in the state of Mississippi has been marching through. They were, I think, 12-0 and at one point. They were pushing through the playoffs. They were headed to the state championship. We have to let people know how they did in the state championship. Tell us. I am really, really proud to announce that they um, won the 6A state football championship. They finished 13-0. and And just a little sidebar about my baby, he made the all-state area first team. So we are just thrilled and grateful, excited. I don't even know if we've calmed down yet. Right. And so you had this big high, I guess that was Friday night. And then, yes. and then tell us about your Saturday. What happened? I mean, we were still thrilled Saturday. We, you know, um, haven't been really going anywhere. So we were just going to celebrate at home and watch Saturday football. It's so funny. We set up televisions everywhere so we can watch multiple games and, you know, just spend time together as a family. And right around um, midday, I started getting notifications of, um, you know, some people coming down sick and um, needing to be off work, understandably, but it it imploded, I guess is a good word to use, um, within about a 12-hour time frame. And as of today, we are shut down until January. All of our students are virtual. um, And I will be honest and say that we've had um, an outbreak within our building and I had to notify, I want to say, hmm, 300 or more parents about wow. children needing to be quarantined. And then a. And this is specific a, to your school. Like this is. Specific to my school and about half of my, um, my teaching staff. Wow. So like, okay. So wait, half of your teaching staff actually came back COVID positive. Is that what you're saying? No, or, they're, or? they're quote, they're quarantined. Quarantine. Gotcha. So. Yeah. It, which makes it difficult to be able to provide oh, instruction. Absolutely. Yeah, and even even in a remote sense too, I imagine it's it's it makes it difficult. Not just 
Absolutely, because generally, um, if you're related to any high school football player um, in the state of Mississippi this past weekend, you left here on Friday, either going to a game or going home to watch football and you didn't worry about taking home teaching materials because, you know, our lesson plans and, and everything is due on Thursday. And I did that so that teachers can always feel a little stress free over the weekend, having already submitted that and to go home without any of your materials, only to find out you will not be able to report back to the building. Um, and you know, for two weeks and you're ill-equipped to provide virtual learning. So we had to really pull together as a team and help each other out and try to make sure our, uh, learning management system was appropriately designed for all of the children and, you know, equip teachers the best we could or cover it, um, for a teacher who was unable to do so. What have you learned over the past, I don't know, two days, three days, about having to move into this emergency mode of having essentially an outbreak in your school? Like, what would you want to share with other teachers and administrators out there? First of all, um, let's be honest and say that, you know, generally we post things on social media and it looks like everybody um, always has something wonderful to say. It's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. But realistically, I want to share that I melted down this weekend. It was extremely stressful. I'm completely worried about my children or worried about my team members, you know, trying to notify parents and get out accurate information as soon as you can is one of the most important things to do. But one thing that we had to make sure people understood is that it takes time to do contact tracing and to be accurate with your data and your information. Mm -hmm. So if anyone was to be upset as to, you know, why are we just now finding out? We reported as fast as we can, but with accurate information, number one. Um, Number two, I'm Being flexible, I have to shout out my entire teaching staff because every teacher in the world literally started this school year um, with uncertainty, doing something that they've probably never done before. But because we've been in this pandemic for several months, we've built our skills around our learning management system and providing virtual instruction for children. And even those, those teachers on my team that didn't necessarily have a virtual course still prepared material um, for virtual access in case a child missed school or whatnot. And so with that being said, because they were so positive and flexible about it, they were able to just switch at the drop of a dime um, this past weekend. And I'm just so grateful and just so proud for them. And I think the last thing we need to remember is that this is a very, very stressful time um, for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And I think the tiered system is worry about your students, take care of your students. And we have to remember to worry about parents, worry about teachers, encourage them. I sent out a text message. Um, I chose not to do a group broadcast to my team. I send out individual text messages to check on each individual teacher, um, whether they were in the building or not, because I want them to know that I care about them, that this is hard, but we're in this together. But one of the things that I appreciate that oftentimes is forgotten is is the, the, the building level principal. And people have contacted me and checked on me and sent me just encouraging messages. And it has just meant the absolute most. And I think the pandemic brings out some positivity because we learn to rally around one another and make it happen for children. No doubt we're going to be uh, continuing to think about you guys in your school. And I think it's for the best, you know, that you are saying, well, let's get through Christmas and then we'll reset in January 
and hopefully and see what decisions will need to be made then right Right. yeah exactly i mean do you think there'll be changes uh in any way or is it just too early to say (laughs) Well, we had already switched back to hybrid learning after Thanksgiving in anticipation of numbers across the country. But now you're looking at a holiday break that may last, you know, is two weeks generally for most school districts. Mm -hmm. And we'll just see, um, you know, based on information uh, delivered by the Mississippi Department of Health, what decisions may have to be made for our area. So I don't want to speculate or guess. We'll just wait on that data to come in. But we are slated right now to return back to traditional in January. Well, let's switch. You said Mississippi Department of Health. We're going to jump over to our friends over in Oklahoma. The Oklahoma State Department of Health announced Wednesday of a short-term policy change, almost an experiment, if you will, that will allow public school students to quarantine at school if they've been exposed to COVID-19 in the classroom. Wow. So that's your general reaction. Listen, first of all, who made this decision what is their title and have they served in schools i just need to know because i want to know where they're going to get the personnel extra personnel to be able to house these children like that and who's going to be willing to do that and put themselves at risk we're already risking by coming to school every day well to answer your question who uh, dr lance fry oklahoma commissioner of health said in a news release quote we have recognized that some students subject to a 14-day quarantine may have lost many essential benefits schools provide such as a safe environment with adult supervision nutritional support internet and technology resources and easier access to instructor assistance adopting this policy change will help protect students and teachers from covid 19 while also providing a safe environment and resources needed for students to engage in distance learning during their quarantine period. So it's almost like taking these kids that may not have a support system at home or may not have the resources at home and sticking them in maybe a large room, I guess, with a teacher overseeing all these. It's almost like a- And how does that protect teachers? You said that it's yeah. to protect. How? Yeah, no, I think I think that is what the, the critics on the other side are saying. Who will be in, the, in this room with these students? Um, you know, and I don't know if it's just like a lot, like you put them in a gymnasium and spread them all out. And I then think there's we're changing the role and responsibility of the educator. My concern about all this is that they're basically testing it over a two to three week period, it looks like. And I don't know hmm. that that's enough time to know if it's successful or not. Like, I feel like, how do you, how do you even tell? Like, you know, if you're doing a science experiments, what are your controls? And I don't feel like there are any um, to really know that, hey, this worked. I agree with you. But one thing I also noted here in this article is it stated that school districts could decide if mm-hmm. they wanted to implement the policy. So it's not now, everyone's doing it. Yeah. They're not required to do it. And so I would like to know the percentage of superintendents um, that were able to convince their school board, you know, or their administrative team um, to do such a thing. One thing I want to point back to what we talked about is going on in my school right now. Um, Obviously, it was upsetting to some parents to find out that we switched automatically overnight like that to 100 percent virtual. Mm -hmm. It may have, you know, caused a a negative impact in regard to their plans and their structure and how they had things going. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day. You have to do what's best for children, and you also have to keep your teachers in mind. They are wives, husbands, mothers, daughters. You know they have they they have children of their own, and I just think you've got to you got to consider all those factors before you make such a grand decision to allow quarantine children to stay in your building. I just couldn't fathom. I'll be honest with you. If if I was told to do that right now. 
um, I'd have some serious life decisions to make. The other story that kept bubbling up uh, this week had a lot to do with, I think it was more of a reflection on the spring and kind of like what were the effects of all this online learning? Um, it was right. a study released by um, McKinsey and company, and they're estimating that the shift to remote learning in the spring actually set, the, and they broke it into race, set white students back by one to three months in math, mm-hmm. while students of color lost three to five months in math. Right. And it really seems like a lot of the the slipping that these studies are showing do tie to math more than any other subject. What say you? I mean, is is that something that seems to be reality in your world? Well, the difference in demographics is not new. The learning gap that we are constantly trying to close um, generally is between, um, you know, the minority students and uh, high poverty versus white students and low poverty. And so what you're seeing now is an even more troubling situation where students of color and students within high poverty areas do not have access to the same resources, materials, and opportunities. Therefore, when we shut schools down this past spring, it did make it even harder for them um, to, you know, switch to a virtual learning um, situation, not only for the students, but think about the schools and the teachers in those same areas having different access to materials. So it's, to me, the entire situation just shed a lot of light on um, an equity issue in education. Uh, the Associated Press also um, had a similar article, not necessarily broken down by demographic, but just saying that hundreds of students are from in, from district to district are actually getting Fs where they weren't before. And, and they're saying that it's not just the fact that these students are necessarily getting Fs. They're seeing a lot more grade scores of zero rather than, say, 50s and 60s and 40s and and so forth. Um, Are you seeing that? You're looking at students being graded on compliance. Um, A lot of the policies that came down that talk about uh, attendance for virtual learning is tied to um, the number of minutes of instruction a day, um, the number, the amount of time that students are logged into the learning management system, as well as the number of components that they complete um, within their daily modules. And then um, a lot of people don't recognize that a lot of that online work Um, opens up at a certain time of the day and it closes um, at a certain time of the day. And so if a child does not log in and does not access and submit that work, then not only are they um, marked absent, they are receiving zeros, which is creating a serious issue. And yes, we've seen that in our area. I think everyone um, is experiencing it some way or another across the nation. And one of the things that we did was talk about, you know, showing children grace because it is not their fault nor within their means Mm -hmm. um, to establish whether they can have internet connectivity to whether they can have laptops or, you know, if they've had someone to pass away in their family, if they have family without jobs, and it's just a hard time for everyone. And so giving children opportunity to turn in their work late. But one of the decisions we had to make midterm this fall, which I'm sure this impacted other school districts, is that some children who were choosing or opting to be virtual, we required them to come on in face to face so that we could give them better support and better instruction. Also, with the support of the CARES Act, we were able to purchase um, enough laptops to issue to all of our students. And I think that that just really changed the game for school districts across the nation. Um, the biggest thing now is getting that internet connectivity to be equal across you know, our country. Um, we've recently 
added hotspots around our school campuses, which will be helpful for those children. But all of this time, that has been the the biggest issue. And so I just don't know if we want to hold children accountable for compliance right now. And that grading scale, grading children for a zero out of a hundred point scale, that's been around for the longest time. Yeah, it's it's rough. I mean, I always like to liken it to um, if you're driving, right? Like you and and your friend are driving to say the beach and um, one car is doing 60 and the other car is doing 70. But that car that's doing 70 stops more frequently all the way down to zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, that car that's going 60 is going to eventually get there before the car going 70 because the car going 70 is making stops. And it's kind of the same way with grades. When you go to zero, it's just such a such a pull down on mm-hmm. on the overall grade. And I noticed that um, the AP article was actually, I think, citing uh, Charleston schools in South Carolina. Um, they are raising the possibility of adjusting the grading back to the way they did in the spring, where instructors were told to give 50s right. instead of zeros. I mean, is that right. the right thing to do? And, and how much of, you know, moving a mountain does it take to be able to be allowed to do that? I think that there are a number of different um, strategies that school districts can take. That is just one. Um, Not closing the window on the learning management system modules is something to consider, but also knowing your children communicating with those families and understanding their situation to make situational uh, mm-hmm. decisions, I think is going to be um, key. One of the things that we did see when we reached out to those parents and made sure that they understood what it meant to log in, what it meant to go through each component of the module, and what it meant to actually submit work, whether it was emailed, a picture taken, however they chose to do it. But a lot of training had to happen for parents, not just the students and teachers, to understand what their child was supposed to do while on virtual. And we've seen a lot of students um, just change the way they were interacting and doing a much better job. And I think parents feel better as well at this point. But there's going to continue to be struggle as is, you know, no different than it is with face-to-face instruction. And we just need to rise to the occasion and meet their needs. There is some good news overall, of course, in the world. We don't want to end on a sad note, but um, it looks like uh, today uh, the United Kingdom started rolling out vaccinations, the uh, Pfizer That's vaccination right. there. So that that is encouraging. And then I saw another um, push this morning that um, our FDA um, actually is saying that the first dose, it will give you somewhat protection, uh, a reasonable protection um, from coronavirus. So, mm-hmm. I mean, while, of course, you want to get both doses in the future, um, that first one actually may start to pay some dividends, hopefully, uh, for some folks that are actually receiving it. So, uh, so that sounds great. We just need to make sure people remember they have to get that second dose. And right, it's, what no is it doubt. like a three week window? Yeah, I think it's 21 days for the second dose. And, and don't quote me on this, but I want to say I read this somewhere. It was like 21 days. And then it takes about five to six weeks before you are, quote, vaccinated, before you are yeah, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. covered, so to speak. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure there's still a lot to learn. Um, anyhow, Christina, I appreciate uh, you sharing your personal experience on having to quickly move into, I guess, school-wide quarantine mode and virtual learning. Um, So thank you so much for sharing that today. Are you ready for today's Bright Idea? I am. Let's go. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to talk to us about using open education resources in a real-world setting. Dan McDowell is the Director of Learning and Innovation of the Grossmont Union High School District in San Diego County, California, and he and his friends have actually been um, at the district spending the past several years developing OER curriculum collections to eventually replace some of the traditional textbooks they use in the classroom. Dan, welcome to Class Dismissed. 
Thank you, Nick. Happy to be here. I'm excited to have you here because we did an episode back in 2017 uh, about OER, Open Educational Resources, um, with Cable Green. And and Cable is a fantastic resource to talk about OER. He's actually the director, I believe, of um, Open Education with Creative Commons. But he's he's not in the classroom. He's not on the the front line. So while he gave us a beautiful, um, overarching view of what OER is... Um, we didn't really get to talk too much about like how hard is this to actually roll out in a school district. So that's why I wanted to bring you on. Um, before we dive into all that, though, help our listeners understand, like if somebody is listening, they have no idea, they've never heard of OER, what exactly is it? So open educational resources are, uh, you know, it's, it's curriculum, it's lesson plans, it's it's instructional materials that are uh, packaged together in a way that teachers can use them, that they can then, you know, transmit them, give them to the students uh, that are that have open licenses on them. So that means we can take those resources and change them and modify them, remix them, uh, make them our own, and then republish them. And that could be either on a building, school level, a district level, or even on a classroom level. So kind of breaks away from Uh, a traditional textbook model where there's the textbook and you are stuck with that textbook. And and you then don't really have the ability to legally modify those resources. Uh, The open license allows you to customize it for your students, for your your area, district, that type of thing. And I guess proponents would argue as well that a district can, A, save money um, because they aren't having to buy large amounts of textbooks. And also the information may even be more up to date uh, and more current than a textbook. Is that right? Absolutely. And and uh, I want to say the saving money part should be maybe down on the list. It's more about uh, ensuring students have uh, the most up-to-date recent materials, the materials that are most relevant to uh, uh, to them and appropriate uh, appropriate to them. Uh, the cost savings is is great, but I but you know when I say open and people sometimes think free, it's it's not free because you're investing in your teachers and their professionalism and their experience to sort of customize that uh, uh, you know those curricular resources and package them in a way that's suitable for their students. So there's still money being spent, but on the teacher level, not necessarily uh, on the textbook level. If I'm a superintendent or a principal and I'm listening to this. I'm thinking, gosh, this is quite the leap of faith. You're telling me you want to ch- like throw out the textbook and go with these digital resources. I mean, how hard of a sell is that? And, and why should a leader even venture down this road? Well, you know, the, the textbook industry is, uh, you know, at least a few years ago was a $3 billion industry in the K-12 world. Uh, it is, uh, you know, cookie cutter curriculum that is mainly aimed or, or has been aimed at, at uh, you know, passing standardized tests uh, and, and not necessarily easily customizable to the, the students who walk into your buildings and your schools each day. And so this, this really does put some, you know, is, is a leap of faith to uh, trust the teachers that you've uh, hopefully thoughtfully hired over the years to uh, identify what's important to have them work together to uh, build communities around practices and around uh, developing the curriculum that uh, you know you know empowers them to to own the curriculum. It's one thing to be handed a a textbook and say here teach this. It's another thing to uh, take time and and this isn't a one year or a one month thing. This is years of ongoing work to to own what you teach. 
Uh, and, and that drives, you know, that, that, that creates a, a greater passion for what's happening in the classroom for teachers, which translates to students. So, all right, let's talk about your journey a little bit here, because this has been, I think you said you've been working on this for about five years. Let's, let's take it back to the beginning. You had an actual meeting at the White House. Is that right? Yeah, well, there was, uh, you know, there was the, the Future Ready movement that was going on about five, six, seven years ago. And uh, out of the Office of Education Technology with the Department of Education, and a movement uh, kind of came off of that called Go Open. And that Go Open movement is still alive and well. Uh, it looks a little different now than it did back then, but it's still it's still moving. And uh, they had a convening, uh, you know, at at the White House as they had had some convenings around the Future Ready. Uh, agreements that many districts, uh, you know, signed on to, including, including the Grossmont Union High School District. And so my superintendent was given, uh, was sent an in, uh, invitation to come to the White House uh, for this sort of kickoff. Uh, Arnie Duncan was there uh, giving some some notes and and I, I begged them, I asked them, hey, what, can I come? And okay. uh, and I was the director of instructional technology at, at the time and, and he, you know, and leading up this, leading up this work and uh, he he made some calls and and I got on the list as well and I, it was it was an amazing kind of experience and uh, I was the lowest ranking person in the room but you know we we came back and started developing a plan worked with our association uh, to develop some uh, guidelines uh, you know we developed some contract language to make sure that teachers are getting paid uh, for the work that they're doing because we never expected or wanted this to be like, oh, here's another thing teachers are going to do without getting compensated for it. I think, uh, you know, I spent 18 years in the classroom before uh, before going to uh, the dark side at the district level. And it's very important for us to honor the the hard work that, that teachers are, are doing. So develop some, uh, some language and work with the association on that. And then uh, really kicked off, uh, kicked off the work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so you come back, you know, with all this excitement and energy about, you know, saying, all right, we're going to do this. Did you have any idea of how challenging this would be and how long it would take? Oh, wow. Uh, it's hard and it's still hard, you know, and, and the pandemic, you know, maybe we'll get to that later has made it harder right now. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been a journey. It's been an incredibly valuable journey for the teachers who have participated. Uh, it hasn't been without its uh, its misses. You know, we we kicked off right away with uh, four subjects. You know, with the idea of replacing the traditional subjects, mm -hmm. or excuse me, re replacing the traditional textbooks. Yeah, with and, these, and where are you? Are. And where are you today in in terms of replacing? Like, are you you think you're fifty percent there, eighty percent there? So so we have we've moved into eight subjects. So so we, this is not like an everything because it takes a lot of time and work to to really develop these resources and curate them and then uh, develop the instructional materials around them. Uh, so we have all of our science, you know, none of our science courses and we're a high school only district. And that's going to sound really weird to, to most of you out in, you know, across the country. But we only have uh, ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th graders. So mm -hmm. all of our science classes are now uh, are now in this this format, so we don't have buy any textbooks for our main science classes. Uh, we have a social science class, and we're working on English, uh, our ninth and tenth grade English classes as well. So this isn't like a change everything sort of thing. It's a see where it fits and where we get the most bang for our buck. 
uh, as far as bringing teachers in to, to do that to do that work. You clearly must be having some success in the world of science if you're basically 100% there. There's no there's no textbooks really in those classrooms, I guess, is what you're saying. With, with the exception of AP level classes, because we, we just haven't gotten to that yet. So, so what did it look like? I mean, like you said, you were paying teachers to basically curate or gather these resources. I mean, where do you even start if you want to do this? Well, we, we started with, uh, you know, seeing what teachers were interested in. We got committees of seven to, to 12 teachers together, and we went through our, our state standards related to the specific subjects. And then we, you know, the first start was what's out there, right? So uh, we're lucky in science. There's a, a great website called CK12 that has open license textbooks on it, and they have uh, done a lot of work around uh, bringing math and science uh, you know, resources, uh, you know, and, and providing them for providing them for free. So we started actually with a great uh, wealth of materials right there in the uh, in the science world by uh, being able to take their textbooks, but then modifying them and remixing and then going to the next level of looking at the supplemental resources resources. So what videos, what additional readings, what other things did we want to uh, bring in that complement uh, what what's in that traditional textbook, and then building uh, lessons and units that draw from those different buckets of resources. And throughout this whole process, super important that that everybody knows that we were vetting these resources. We had uh, a series of rubrics that we that we built based upon uh, uh, some resources that are out there in the OER world. That every single every single piece of uh, you know every single curricular resource, whether it's a lesson plan, a supplemental reading or video, or a uh, textbook uh, excerpt, is been reviewed by this group, and uh, and then gone through you know a vetting process that then allows it to to join into. Uh, or be added to our our collection. I have to ask, what what did you find during the vetting process? Because, like you said at the top, this was a is a three billion dollar industry. What what motivation does anybody have to take the time to write an open licensed textbook? So they are the CK twelve, for instance, is a is a educational foundation uh, nonprofit who uh, gets donations and and then you know pays people to develop these resources and then and then gives them gives them out for free. So there are lots of uh, uh, groups out there doing that. And, and this OER uh, work is actually not new at the college level, at the higher ed level. Uh, it's been going on for a long time, in part because professors were tired of sending their students to buy $300 textbooks. And so they said, I could write what my I could write my own. And then heck, if I'm going to write it, I'm just going to put it out there for free. So mm -hmm. There are a lot, you know, this work has been going on for a long time at the at the higher ed level. Now, I will say sort of a difference that that is between the higher le ed level and the K-12 work is the K-12 work also has a strong emphasis on pedagogy mm -hmm. versus just content. You know, so I think there's there's a, a different focus on on like how you're teaching these materials versus just what are what are your teaching, what you're teaching and trying to get it to your students for less money. Did you ever see an example or the, maybe the teacher who was, you know, gathering all this science information and science textbooks? And did they ever come to you and say, hey, this is so much better. And here's why. Look at look at what we have in our textbook and look at what we have in this OER resource. It's more about being able to, you know, make sure your students have what the standards are saying and what you're prioritizing within those standards. So, uh, you know, there could be, uh, you know, 
instead of, I can remember, I was a social science teacher, but I can remember, you know, when I used my textbook years ago, uh, you know, in the, in the, the 90s and early aughts, uh, that um, I would say, read page 323 to 325 and then skip four pages and go to 329 and read the third pair. So now what we can do, instead of, instead of having kids jump around in a, in a book, we can actually delete all the information we don't, you know, we're not prioritizing at that point. Gotcha. And even add, you know, additional, uh, you know, additional language, or we can embed videos now into this, into this resource. So you have that perfect YouTube video, or you make your own video for that matter. You can have it right there embedded into the text. So every kid can get it right then, instead of then having to go someplace else and, and that type of thing. So the ability to kind of focus, um, students on exactly what you want uh, is is incredibly, incredibly powerful, especially in this world of Google Classroom and Schoology and, and Canvas and mm. Blackboard, where you can kind of put your own puzzle together and you're not bound to the, the track that a textbook generally has, has uh, kept us on. So this new OER textbook, and I'm doing air quotes, like what does that yep. look like for a student? So it doesn't look like a textbook. It looks like, okay, we're studying photosynthesis this week. Here is uh, a reading on Monday uh, with maybe a video and some questions uh, and then a lab on Tuesday. I don't know what a photosynthesis lab looks like. I'm a social studies teacher, so forgive me. <laughs> no uh, but uh, but you, know, it, you know, it doesn't feel like a textbook. It feels like here's something relevant to what we're learning about today. And it's just given to students, you know, in a true, in it, it could be on paper right now. Nothing's on paper, but let's say in a, you know, pre, you know, prior to uh, uh, COVID and shutting down schools, uh, you know, it could be just the teacher printed something out and printed two pages of of this, you know, this this uh, OER science, you know, we'll call it a textbook collection of resources, uh, but the kids not thumbing through to page 323, they're just getting page 323 on a single piece of paper, or they're getting it digitally in a, in a smaller chunk, which, you, which you, is uh, better, better for reading too. So you're, you're not stuck in this, the sea of words, you have exactly what you need to read. Do you think that if a district wants to pull this off, they need to be one to one with devices? Or is it not necessary? Uh, it's it's much harder to do it if you're not uh, if you're not one to one. Now now we have the ability uh, to print all of these materials out, and in fact, we uh, in California, it, all kids must have ready access to to these materials, and so we've always uh, you know had a uh, a capacity to print out these things, and we do at some of our schools to make sure kids. Uh, you know, kids always have access to the to the curriculum. Uh, that being said, having the devices, you know, you can't you can't play a video on a piece of paper. So so it's 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 better if you're if you're one to one. And so let's reflect on the past nine months. Um, here we are. You know, obviously, I guess you're in California, so you've probably been virtual the whole time. If not, is that right? Or for you we, guys? we have kids coming to school one day a week. Okay, there you so, go. So we are, but in in the San Diego County, we're the only school district, high school district, who have kids in classes right now, and it's only one day a week, so four days a week they're virtual. So let's talk about the science class again, since we know that you're you're basically all the way there um, with the without the books. Have you found that that has been a pro being with these OER resources during this time, or is it really doesn't matter either way? Uh, I think it's absolutely been been a pro. It, it got us started a lot faster in those subjects that have this. 
in uh, those four sciences and the world history are the ones that are completely done. The English ones that I mentioned are still in progress. Uh, those teachers were able to just basically start breaking, you know, doing what they've already been doing with those resources by breaking them apart and then being able to deliver them uh, digitally uh, through, uh, through our learning management system. And, uh, you know, it was much easier than trying to get kids, trying to get kids the books. And then, you know, home situations are, are all varied as well. And so a kid may have a book, but it may, may not be with them when they need it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having it all on the computer and available, not only on the Chromebook that we, that we supply students, but they can get it on any device, including their phones or family, you know, desktops, that type of thing. Uh, the accessibility is, is, uh, is much greater. As we mentioned, you've been doing this uh, or working towards this goal for half a decade. I mean, have you, what's the message you'd want to tell somebody who has not even started this yet, but they're thinking about it? What did you learn over those past five years? You have to have buy-in from the teachers. You, you can't assign teachers this. You can't say, go do this. They have to really want want it because they have to own it. Uh, and it might take some convincing. We had some, we'll call them non-believers at first, who who then came in going, well, yeah, you know, I, I wasn't quite into it at first, but now I see the power of it. Uh, you have to trust them, you know, and, and make sure you put in some, uh, we'll call it quality control elements in it to make sure that, uh, you know, everybody knows we're looking for high quality educational materials. We're not just looking for a list of links because they're, I mean, if you do a search on any topic, uh, you can find a list of links, mm-hmm. right? You know, because people have been curating those forever. We want the best of the list of links, right? So if there are 10 videos on photosynthesis, what are the best one or two? Instead of just keep doing the, you know, guessing which which one is the best, you know, and and understanding that the uh, it's a vetting process. And and also understanding that that this is an on this is ongoing work. We will never stop doing this work. And we have a line item in our budget every year. We have, you know, X amount of dollars based upon, you know, the team members and the work that needs to be done and all that set aside to, to do, uh, to do this work. And there's a great saying in the OER world that, uh, uh, OER is, is free like a puppy, not free like a beer, right. Or, or beverage of your choosing, we'll call it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because, because the beverage is going to be gone, right. Uh, a puppy you have to raise, you have to groom, you have to train, you have to, you know, you are going to uh, take that, uh, you know, take that living being through its life, you know, through its life cycle and, and help with it uh, all the time. Sometimes the messy stuff, taking it to the vet or cleaning up in the backyard, you know, not everything, not everything is perfect, but, you know, the the reward of, of, uh, of, of going through this process and, and doing the work and building the community among teachers. That's been one of the most powerful pieces of this is uh, our teachers love talking to each other about their subjects. So I'm, I'm a social studies teacher and, and early on in the process, I would sit through, we'd have full day breakout, uh, breakout times where teachers from across our, our 10 schools would come together to uh, talk about the different subject areas. And I would sit in in space and earth science, biology, physics, chemistry, uh, all of these all of these uh, subjects that I, you know, uh, was not necessarily familiar with, right, on a, on a intimate level, like I was world history and U.S. history and that sort of thing. And I just love the energy of the room with with smart people geeking out about what they love 
which is the content and then how to teach that content to kids, how to get kids to, to want to love it as well. And that that's super powerful when you give teachers the opportunity to do that, especially when when if you're able to do it across schools. So then you get this this cross fertilization of ideas and and teaching styles that that has been uh really, really powerful. And now that you've adopted this puppy, I mean, do you have any regrets? Like, is it, is it more work than you were expecting to, like you said, to keep it groomed, to keep things up to date in the OER world? So, so it is more work than I, than I was expecting, uh, you know, an an ongoing work and I moved positions and I took this project with me. Uh, and so I've been, I've continued to remain, uh, uh, very involved with it. Uh, I, I don't have any regrets because we've been able to sustain five years of conversations about curriculum and about pedagogy that is harder to do in the subjects where we're not doing this. So we've been able to have those discussions in those science classes and world history. We've started in our English classes when before we started, you know, doing these projects in our ninth and 10th grade English, we didn't really have long sustained talks about literacy, about teaching reading, about teaching writing, about themes. Uh, you know, they were all happening maybe in pockets at some schools, but now we're having this, this district, district-wide conversation that uh, is incredibly powerful and is, is making teachers rethink maybe things they've done for years and years because that's what they've always done. Any pushback so, from parents? It keeps, it, it, it keeps it fresh. No, it, and, and all, uh, it doesn't, we haven't had any pushback from parents because because parents are expecting a high quality education experience and and i think if anything we've uh we've improved that maybe even without them knowing right so so, you know these have been approved these have been adopted by the board we we go through an adoption process where we bring it to a parent group uh and and also at the high school level parents are less involved in the day-to-day especially the curriculum uh, than, than they are in the, in the, you know, elementary and maybe even middle school, middle school worlds. Do you have any idea, um, how widely this has been adopted? I mean, are you a pioneer, so to speak, uh, when it comes to this, are you speaking to other districts about it? Yeah, we, we, we are, we are pioneers in this, in this world. Uh, but there are lots of districts who have, who have taken this on and, and some have, there's been some different approaches. Some have have used it as maybe the con- that content creation. So there's a number of districts who spent a year, uh, sometimes less, sometimes a little bit more, like building the te- building the digital textbook that that is free, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then they work um, they work with their teachers on the pedagogy side, but sort of disconnected from the OER process. Uh, some have had this ongoing this ongoing work like we have. Uh, so, so it's, it's kind of a mixed bag and, and, you know, if you were to interview someone else, who's uh, another there, you know, there's a number of pioneers out there, they'll probably give you a whole different story because it's all based upon the culture of the district, the culture of your state, right. You know, as far as what, what curriculum looks like and how that's done, uh, you know, in, in Michigan, for instance, they have statewide OER, a statewide, uh, OER project where they have textbooks that are available to the entire state. We're in California. Uh, it's sort of piecemeal. You go here, you get some different, you know, you know, in San Diego County, we have a number of districts who are, who are doing the same sort of work, but, you know, we talk to each other, but we're not necessarily all aligned and working together. So it's, it's sort of grassroots, you know, and, and uh, as far as, as far as uh, uh, where it's happening 
across the country. Yeah, I'm trying to wrap, but you just keep make, raising all these interesting questions in my mind because um, you were mentioning Michigan and I'm thinking, all right, well, maybe it would be a good idea for this to be a state decision because then you could have somebody in a state office, you know, kind of gathering all these resources, but maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe you like the fact that your district gets to control this. I, I do. I like us being able to customize what's important to us. And, uh, and, and really kind of get that, get that focus. And I think it's also about empowering the teachers to own what they're teaching. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think we're coming out of a, an era in education. And I want to call it sort of the dark times of, of high, you know, high stakes standardized testing, schools being raided, no child left behind, uh, even race to the top really kind of, kind of went in that same direction where kids had to know like a very, um, small bucket of things. And then we focused all our energy on those bucket of things. And I think education needs to be more broad than knowing stuff. It's knowing how to think. It's knowing how to, um, you know, process arguments and, and think, think broadly about, about uh, uh, lots of different areas. There, there's education, the four C's, critical thinking, creativity, communication, collaboration. You know, those don't, sh those didn't show up on the California standardized tests uh, before Common Core, it was you know in my in my subject world history is is what happened in the French Revolution, mm -hmm. you know not why was the French Revolution game changing for the entire world and how what's its continuing impact today, uh, you know that you could you could have a great argument about and discussion about instead it's it's you know what in what order did these things happen. Yeah, we need we yeah, need right. kids to know what Siri and Alexa can't tell us quickly, right? Right, right, and and sometimes we get stuck still, you know, in in that we and, and for us, it's been a big focus on let's get past knowing stuff, let's get let's get to doing and creating stuff, uh, and, and and that 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 goes a long way. I know that's a very simplified uh, simplified uh, view of it, but but I think I think that's what our kids need, and. Uh, it's, I think it'd be really hard to do that on a state level. And, and I, I, you know, California, we're a big state, you know, I, I don't know that I want Sacramento uh, telling us like you, this, you know, this is the resource you can use, you know, it'd be great maybe if they provided some resources and allowed us to adapt them and change them. But, but I don't, I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that that Sacramento can do that or, or, you know, every, every other capital across the country, uh, that's there. Now I love the Michigan stuff and we've actually borrowed from the Michigan stuff and brought that into our work, you know, because it's a good thing. And, and the idea there is making sure those open licenses are on it so we can take it and remix it. Exactly. Well, yeah, th this whole OER discussion is just fascinating to me. I mean, make a prediction for me. Do you envision much of the country adopting this in 10 years from now? Like, will we be there or is this not going to be widely adopted? Um, I, I think it's, I think I think that you'll still have pockets. I don't know that it's going to go, you know, it's easier to buy a textbook. Let's say that it's, right. it's faster. It's easier to buy a textbook. And, uh, you know, there are advantages to, to, to that process because then it's just there. Uh, and then it's learning how to use it. But for, for the, for the districts and, and maybe County States that really want teachers to own that, to own, to take responsibility for that learning, uh, I think I think we will see that uh, continue to grow. I think we're going to see a, a a big a big change and a big shift uh, out of the Department of Ed uh, going on because that was work that was being done in the previous administration, and some of those people are are going to 
at least influence, if not come back into the next administration to kind of broaden out this bigger focus on pedagogy and these open open resources. Dan, it is a fascinating conversation. If somebody wants to keep up with your journey with it, I mean, do you blog about it? Do you do you post on Twitter? You know, not as not as much these days. Uh, you know, my, my the OER hat is one of about fifteen, maybe thirty that hang up in my office here. Right. Uh, so I also oversee our distance learning stuff and professional learning and all that sort of stuff. So uh, we do have a great website. OER.jewishsd.net that has all of our projects except for the English. We'll be adding those soon though, because like I said, those are still in progress. But we have all the resources that we've done for the five board adopted subjects that are uh, that are that are there uh, that we've already you know implemented uh, on that on that website and and lots of lots of great resources, including the process for which we've gone through and and myself and some of the other people involved in the program have presented on on that at different conferences and and so uh, we feel pretty comfortable uh, you know with what we've done and. I know other districts have, have uh, followed our model and, and have made some good progress as well. Give me that address one more time and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes as well. Excellent. O-E-R dot G-U-H-S-D dot net. Got it. And if anybody wants to check that out, you can also find it in the show notes. Um, Dan, uh, thank you so much for sharing y'all's uh, journey with us. Are you ready for uh, our pop quiz? Absolutely. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Dang, that's a hard one. Um, wow, I, I, I think I'm going to have to go with English, but math is a close second. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Creativity. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves an equal opportunity at success, which means we have to be equitable in how we deliver resources. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I think providing equitable support for all our students, which isn't equal support. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. Which teacher changed your life? Wow. Uh, Mr. Ritter at fourth, fifth and sixth grade. He brought compassion and kindness uh, to the classroom and understanding uh, and he allowed us to be creative and thoughtful, and he challenged us to to keep doing better without uh, in in a in a way that was safe. And last question: pen or pencil? Pen. All right. Again, Dan McDowell, uh, we appreciate you so much for for taking the time to chat with us about um, OER. And uh, again, if you want that website, it's oer.guhsd.net. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for so, so much for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>